Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Vivo Life. I am so excited to be partnering with Vivo Life for this series. They are the creators of my favorite health supplements and they're also one of the most environmentally conscious companies I've come across. All of their products are 100% plant-based, they're certified carbon neutral and they plant one tree for every single order they receive. They have also just launched 100% home compostable packaging across their product range. So when you finished with one of their pouches, you can simply add it to your garden compost or your food waste collection. This means no more plastic scoops and bags of protein powder going to landfill. Vivo Life make all of their products in their renewable energy powered factory in Glastonbury here in the UK. Now I'm always the first to say that a healthy diet is the most important thing but sometimes the right supplements can fill in the gaps that our diets are missing. This is where Vivo Life's products are so helpful for me. I take their vitamin B12, vegan omega-3 and vegan vitamin D3 daily as these are the key nutrients that can be hard to get when following a plant-based diet. The best thing of all of this is that I know Vivo Life's products are made with natural ingredients that I can trust. I also love the way their vitamins are in liquid form, which means I don't have to swallow a load of pills and it means I can properly absorb them. So if you're looking for natural, healthy, plant-based supplements that taste amazing and help to protect the planet, then head over to vivolife.co.uk and use the discount code TALKINGTASTEBUDS to get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks very much to Vivo Life. Welcome back to Talking Taste Buds Season 6. I'm Venetia Lamana, and in this series, I chat to inspiring thinkers and leaders who encourage people like you and me to live a conscious and full life. Florence Colley Raja is the founder and director of Ethical Era and the creator of the 2030 Positive Planet Agenda. Florence came to the sustainability sphere via her public sector work, where she worked with the UK Parliament, European Parliament and local government for a decade. Prior to Ethical Era, Florence spent five years researching and testing sustainability concepts in fashion at a startup level, which led her to explore all factors relating to sustainability and climate change with a specialisation in fashion. Ethical Era serves to track sustainability-focused organisations and leaders and to showcase that organisations and individuals can be a force for good. In this interview, we discuss politics and how to lobby the government to create the necessary system change. We also talk about the changing landscape in sustainable fashion and the difficulties we still face as consumers. There's a lot in this episode and I'm so grateful to Florence for sharing so much of her experience and wisdom with us. She really is wonderful and I'm just very grateful. So without any further ado, here is the wonderful Florence Colley-Rager on Talking Taste Buds. Florence, hello. Hi. Welcome to Talking Taste Buds. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. Let's start as we always do. What did you have for breakfast? 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm I tend to eat what I'm um, what I enjoy most, and what's sort of I guess uh, I don't like to call food good good or bad, but what is uh, I guess a bit naughtier. So I do tend to have something sweet in the morning, so then I can burn off the calories during the day. <laughs> uh, so I did have one of those big fat chocolate croissants, and then that, that's me done for a day. <laughs> I love that. I'm very impressed that you can limit the chocolate just to breakfast. <laughs> um, so let's talk about you and your life and growing up and who you are and your family and just tell us about you of course um so i'm uh, of mixed origin and uh, my mother is russian ukrainian and my father is west african from liberia uh liberia has quite a unique history in that it's the back to Africa slave movement that was um, uh, set up for people to, you know, rediscover the roots and go back to Africa in essence to um, find their way back to uh, their culture. Uh, the interesting part about Liberia is that even in um, the act of, of doing that um, and setting up such a unique state that was the first independent state in Africa, uh, they did in fact displace the indigenous people um, when they did move back. So there is a little bit of a sort of controversial history around that. Um, so I was actually born in Liberia and I was there till the age of three, but things got quite um, complex in terms of politics. Um, there was a civil war there. Um, so my mother sent me to live in uh, Ukraine, in Kiev uh, with my grandmother. Uh, it's weird for me to call her grandmother. We, we say babushka in Russian so she's oh. always babushka to me um, but yes so um, at three years old um, I was separated from my parents and I was um, sent to live in Kiev at that point which was still you know part of the Soviet Union um, and uh, it was at the time also I think that was a very difficult decision for my mum to make in terms of sending me away from her but also uh, Kiev um, at that time this was a couple of months after the Ch Ch Chernobyl spill as well so um, it's uh, I sort of look back at my um, uh, the choices that my parents had to make as sort of very complicated ones uh, in terms of you know finding a new life for themselves and for us and getting us to safety. Um, and I was in Kiev from the age of three till about eight uh, with my babushka and then subsequently I joined my parents in the UK when they chose to come and um, set up base here and make their life here. And it was as uh, crazy as them sitting down with a map and saying to themselves, you know, do we do the US? Do we go to Switzerland? Do we go to the UK? Um, um, and it was almost uh, in, in, in a somewhat controversial way, but it was where was the easiest to to get to um, and where they would be accepted the quickest for them to be able to set up um, family life and um, obviously reunite us. So at that time, they picked the, the UK because UK has such a wonderful culture of being so accepting of um, people who have chosen to make their life here. So I joined my parents here at the age of eight. Um, and so I have this kind of wonderful mix of cultures covering the African continent. Uh, a very strong tie to Russia because Russian um, uh, is in a way my first language um, because I, I forgot English when I moved to, to the Soviet Union and I had to relearn English um, and so I, I think in Russian <laughs> also so uh, that's a big part of my life and obviously I've been brought up in the UK for the majority of my life and I feel very British um, and I was schooled in public schools which makes me I guess even more British um, and so it's this wonderful mix of uh, then gives me this wonderful outlook as to still always being part of a broader world and never really just viewing my life as just me or my family and just the you know the city I'm in or the you know the country I'm in I always feel very connected to all all cultures around the world and in the sense of um, our responsibility to other people what an amazing interesting start in life that you had <laughs> you obviously have all of these different uh, influences 
how did that affect the food that you were eating when you were little? What kind of food did yes. you grow up on? Uh, so we grew up with parents very much so cooking. And that's not to say that people don't cook in certain cultures, but they think that's more to do with time frames. People have started to eat, you know, ready meals and very processed foods. Um, but um, and I think those were more readily available in, in the West um, sooner relative to sort of, you know, the development and industrialization of um, the food industry. Uh, but specific to, I guess, African food, um, that hasn't happened so much. People really very much so cook from scratch and um, it's really wonderful food. Um, I hate to say it is quite meat heavy um, and obviously that's not necessarily good for, um, you know, the um, environment and the planet as a whole. Russian food uh, is, it's interesting because it's also very much defined by the history of the Soviet Union and uh, the fact that there was very little interaction with, you know, the outside world and so we used what we had. Um, so there's a lot of activities such as, you know, mushroom picking and, um, I don't know, uh, we were very close to the land and we have this concept in Russia because people, um, well, in the Soviet Union, people didn't really travel much. It wasn't allowed as such during the Soviet period and prior to that, people, you know, before the Soviet Union, people didn't travel because, um, you know, transport wasn't as developed, you know, in the 19th century. So we have a concept of something called the Dutcher, which is like a summer, summer holiday place uh, where people go to spend time and you always have land next to it. So we're very sort of, you know, hands-on. It's almost like the allotment concept, but taking it a step further. It's like a country home where you go to spend the summers and you go mushroom picking and you have cherry trees and apple trees. And it's all part of, you know, the way that you see food and you use it um, and uh, it ties sort of, you know, families together and the culture together. Um, uh, now that I'm in the UK, uh, I am a busy mum um, and uh, we have different dietary requirements in my home in that my son was born with very severe allergies um, that has given me a different um, I guess slant on food as to uh, you know the impact it can have on you know um, a body and uh, how careful you have to be relative to allergies but this made me more creative perhaps also in what we can we can do in our household uh, relative to that um, so it's sort of a, a mixed batch of uh, African food some Russian food British food, I mean, wild food, Italian food. Uh, my husband's Indian, so he does like his spice. So we, there's a lot of Indian food, and that's something new, I guess, in my repertoire in the last um, eight years that we've been married. It's that I've actually learned to cook Indian food as well, which has been great fun. I bet. That must be amazing. Yes. And you said that your parents decided to move to the UK because it had a reputation of being very welcoming. Was that your experience when you guys got here? A hundred percent. I... I've always felt at home here. This is my home. Um, and uh, I, you know, I have never been questioned as to who I am, where I'm from. Uh, the UK has given me the best opportunities that perhaps would not have been available even in my, my own countries, especially as someone of mixed origin. I think sometimes in um, countries where there tends to be sort of, you know, one set culture, you would still sit on the periphery of that. Whereas I think in, in the UK, um, it's especially London, and it's such an international set. Um, people come here to work, people come here to settle. So um, I was educated in the private school system through scholarships. Um, that was the most you know, uh, wonderful opportunities. Uh, not because I necessarily would promote the concept of having that segregation of you know private schools and state schools. I, I think that's not necessarily a good thing, but uh, it was a good thing thing for me at the time growing up relative to what the UK structure is and the opportunities it gave me um, then to subsequent, subsequently go to you know fantastic universities when my parents didn't have that much money at that given point to uh, to offer us that so uh, I, I think you know things are changing somewhat um, relative to I guess the 
uh, the rise of uh, you know these movements that uh, are now starting to talk about immigration in in a way that's perhaps uh, a little bit unsavory uh, t uh, to me. Um, but at the same time, I think. Um, there's a little bit of confusion relative to the information that's being put out there for for people. So um, through my politics work, I have campaigned, you know, all the way from here to Scotland, Ireland, you know, the north, and various different places. And I think a lot of people perhaps might point, you know, their finger or start speaking about immigration as perhaps the cause of some of the issues. But I think what the cause is is that they've actually been forgotten outside of London. I think all investment, all the activities happen in London, and there hasn't been much investment in the rest of the UK. And people are looking for sort of a scapegoat relative to sort of you know who they want to point the finger at um that you know those opportunities aren't available to them but they're not available to them not because of you know immigrants etc they're actually not available to them because you know there has been no investment into many of these places if you go to the, the isle of white for instance my mum's retired there it's like stepping back into the 40s 50s you can tell that no money has been put into you know the island for many many years so you can understand you know how people feel perhaps um but no i i absolutely love the uk and this is home and this is definitely home for me for the foreseeable future and uh, i hope to be part of a movement of perhaps healing the country after i think some of the things that have happened in the last couple of years it feels like we are living in the most interesting time and i am definitely no political specialist in any way i'm trying to learn more um which is why partly i've got you here to learn more um but one of the things that seemed to come out of the election kind of backs up what you've just said is how people who are outside of london have felt very kind of uh, left alone and that that and I think the reason they said that the reason why the conservatives did actually win is because they maybe put more effort in, in those areas and they tried to win those seats but before we get there can we talk a little bit about your career and mm -hmm. how you got into politics and if that was your intention to get into politics mm -hmm. and how that experience was for you I come from a family of um, artists uh, my mum as a piano uh, well, piano teacher and a pianist in a former life. Uh, my father is a jazz trumpeter. Wow. <laughs> uh, but as we know, the arts doesn't really pay well. So they've had other jobs along the way. My mum has taught in schools. Uh, my father had you know, jobs in IT and tech and in teaching as well. Um, so they've always had multiple jobs to to sort of you know, keep their lives going. Um, so my original plan was uh, to be a ballet dancer. And I, uh, alongside being at school, I trained as a ballet dancer my whole life. Um, and at the age of 16, I joined a Company called Ballet Black um, that was uh, a company to promote ethnic uh, minority dancers because we don't have as many opportunities in the main companies. Um, that has changed now. I joined the company when I was 16 uh, called Ballet Black. I had a good run with them until the age of 21. Instead of having you know, a job in a shop, I danced in the ballet company to you know fund my way through university and it was fantastic. But then I hung up my point shoes. I didn't see any other opportunities. So I, at that point, made a very strange decision in that I thought if I can't do what I love, I'm going to go and do do that which can make the most money and I think I felt that sense also and that necessity because um, at that given point my brother needed assistance to also get free university uh, my my mum uh, was divorced and needed some financial assistance so I went after an investment banking job I ended up working in investment banks after being an artist which is you know the strangest thing um, but I studied politics and economics at university um, and so I ended up working on that asset management side of investment banks wow. in hedge funds and uh, fund of funds, private equity. It was really interesting. And I, I can't say I was brilliant at it. I worked hard. Internally, I think I struggled with it because that 
you can't run away from who you are and if you're an artist you're an artist and I think that jobs like that can be quite um, difficult with the politics that happened actually by accident so I did some environmental campaigning in my local area orientated around the green belt and saving a few spots from developers who were trying to get in um, a, a small community with very elderly people and they were trying to <laughs> bully people in terms of them selling off their properties to build these big developments and and I was sort of like oh, this is not happening on my watch I was I how old was I I think 24 25 and so we did this whole sort of local campaign to stop um, these developers getting in and um, at that point I was approached by the local councillors and they were sort of like well why don't you you know get involved in local politics and it sort of grew from from there while I was working I've it seems like I've always had like a double life while at university I was a bad dancer while I was in investment banking I suddenly had this double life you know uh, in the evenings going out campaigning on local issues and I was doing politics and it kind of grew from there quite accidentally. I went from local politics to uh, getting onto the UK parliamentary candidates list to run for UK parliament. Uh, I was shortlisted for European parliament. Um, so it was really quite unusual because it, that wasn't planned when the opportunity presented itself relative to the countries that I came from where you know you've got Liberia where you've had the civil war and very few people would you know have a voice to speak up politically about something or the Soviet Union where the consequences of speaking up about something is very you know dire um, I felt that there was no way that I could say no to an opportunity like that so I kind of just <laughs> went with it then it just became bigger than I realized and always took over my life uh, in a in a good way and in some ways maybe not in a good way either so I so you started started getting involved with politics as a result of kind of caring about social justice issues Mm -hmm. but I know you as someone who really passionately cares about environmental justice issues so how when did you start thinking about the planet in that way and how did that come into your Mm. politics so I always thought about the planet and but I guess when you're in politics you um and you deal with environmental issues uh in words commas you're very much dealing with your local areas so your local ward or constituency or you're just looking at the you know UK as a whole and that's your job as you know an uh, up-and-coming UK politician um, it only dawned on me um, uh, about the issue of sustainability only came to light and unraveled and sort of opened up to me when I left politics that's the strangest thing and that's what shocked me the most is that I could be educated in the top university work as a UK you know uh, politician um, prospective politician and um, and having worked in investment banks and yet I never understood any of the information and how extreme it is and and the nature of how much obviously we are relying on our, our planet and, and you know that at the light level but how much damage we have done um, in the sense said that you know soon we're going to lose um, the resources that we have so that only came about when I left politics um, at you know post sort of 30 plus and I um, uh, and my son was born and at that point I had a difficult run in that um, I was I, I wasn't treated well after having children in politics and I was I would be honest I was pretty much pushed out of um, running for for office and at that point my son was ill with these allergies that I spoke about earlier so I took two years out and in those two years out as many women think you know the baby will sleep in the corner and I can get on with all these projects and I thought you know let me get back to my creative roots and I (laughs) 
attempted to set up a, a sustainable fashion brand, which is much more complicated than I realized. And it's in delving into the depths of having your own company and trying to do something sustainably because I knew I, it, it was to be done ethically because I knew the humanitarian side of clothes um, and you know, women, children being used in the sweatshops. But what I didn't realize is that the environmental side of the impact of textiles and everything that you know goes with the fashion industry and over sort of you know two years, uh, my eyes were opened extensively and I think once you learn that for one sector you ultimately can pick up that same model and apply it to really any sector it doesn't matter if you're in finance sector fashion you know agriculture the footprint is exactly the same be it you know freshwater depletion water pollution you know greenhouse gas emissions you realize that this is the case for absolutely everything and once you know this information you can't unknow it but as I say I was very shocked that it took me you know time out of mainstream institutions and time by myself and being an entrepreneur and trying to do something ethically to really learn how bad industry and business is uh, relative to you know humans around the world and our, our planet so spending this t- time this two years mm-hmm. trying to set this sustainable roundup and learning about the industry the fashion industry and everything else did that did you were you then were you then discouraged? Do you think you know what I can't do this sustainably, or I don't have this in me to do this in the way that I need to do it mm-hmm. to feel okay about it? Mm-hmm. Where did things? How did things progress from there? So things progressed to the point where um, I realised that I would have to go back to um, I've sort of been going around in circles. I would have to go back to using my advocacy and my political voice again um, because it's all very well um, having a brand, and I, I do uh, you know I think very highly of designers and I I think they're actually leading the way far more so sometimes than people who are advocates um, because they are quietly getting on with finding the answers whereas advocates can sometimes speak a lot about things but often you know you ask you know where where is the the actual action within that so it's not to belittle sort of what designers are doing but I realized that um, beyond um, you know I wasn't trained as a a designer Um, that wasn't necessarily my forte even though you know I wasn't bad at it but I realized that once I knew that information I needed to do more of it and that's where I started stepping back into using my political voice again but this time not in the capacity of actually running for office or being involved with a specific party but instead using it for the sustainability um, cause be it sustainable fashion or other sectors as well because obviously I know policy quite well and I know what governments need to do I've been in the finance space so I know what you know investment banks and the finance industry can do relative to you know um, divesting out of you know fossil fuels investing into clean tech etc and, and and many other elements that they, they need to be involved in uh, and then I knew this sort of you know fashion side inside out so I had these kind of three bases covered fashion politics and and finance and once you know three you almost can venture into so many and even when you touch on one you have no choice but to touch on many because if you talk fashion you know fashion in, in terms of pot, you know, a huge chunk of the textiles is t- tied to agriculture so suddenly you know a lot about agriculture you start knowing a lot about deforestation or land management because that all ties into the fashion industry so I found myself having to uh, become you know um, vocal about it on a, a, a bigger platform and using that sort of political voice for the climate action and sustainability movement and how have you seen the conversation around sustainability change over the past I guess you've been doing this for 10 years now Mm -hmm. and how are you feeling about it in terms of politics and and what our government are doing so um what's changed is that 
everybody's aware of it now. Um, whereas I guess uh, 10 years um, ago or even more than that, there were very few of us, especially tied specifically to sustainable fashion. So many people will speak about aviation, um, speak about, you know, the fossil fuel industry, dairy and meat industry, um, but very few realize, you know, the impact of fashion. And I remember touching upon it more so from the humanitarian perspective and trying to host um, while I was still working in in pure politics, trying to bring that subject into parliament and having, you know, some conferences around it, some panel um, speakers come in to speak about it. Um, and at that uh, point, I remember taking uh, being taken outside by a mentor and then um, speaking to me quite sternly and saying, Florence, you're going to ruin your political career if you speak about, you know, too much about climate change and environmentalism, especially, you know, what's this fashion palaver tied to politics? How does that even make sense? No one really even understood um, the value, firstly, of the fashion industry and what it represents, uh, within our GDP in the UK so people overlook the industry as a whole as something frivolous when actually it's a big contribu contributor to you know jobs in our economy which is you know quite strange even the fishing industry has representation in parliament and it's like a fraction of a size and fashion has never had any representation in parliament at all um, subjects that I was picking because they were either controversial or people wouldn't take me seriously whereas now um, those very you know institutions that perhaps would have you know um, laughed at the subject or not being interested in, in it are now um, you know driving it forward and are part of a conversation um, be it UK Parliament or some of these big you know fashion companies everyone's finally on board so you're not you, know, you don't feel like you're you know the outside or you know the, that mad person speaking about something that no one else is interested in and when I first started at that point it was only Livia Firth of EcoAge who was around at that time and there was the ethical fashion forum which is I think they've converted to common objective and mm -hmm, yeah. now um, and they were the only guys around so the other element is that it's all blown up and suddenly there's like thousands of people as part of our movement whereas at that time I remember scrambling around for speakers and reaching out to EcoAge and uh, Ethical Fashion um, Forum at that time and I had to fly someone in which is not good from India to speak about uh, a particular subject um, it's a charity that works with women who make clothes and I'm wearing one of their items now it's called beautiful. She which is self-help enterprise um, and I was scrambling around looking for speakers there were no speakers to, to even present to parliament on the subject whereas now if I decide to hold the same conference <laughs> I mean you know you'd have you know, thousands if not millions of people you could invite but it does seem it still seems to me that although the government you know I, you can't read a newspaper without reading 15 stories about the climate change now which is amazing but it does seem that the gov government are less on board with fashion was it last year that they rejected all of the proposed could you tell us about that environmental audit committee the eac um initiated the review um of or an inquiry around fast fashion um and to actually understand uh, what is the human and uh, planetary cost relative to the fashion industry uh the report was quite damning in terms of you know how um horrendous it is um you know be it, um, tied to modern um day slavery and human rights rights Relations. And uh, and those are not just abroad, they're actually happening here in the UK as well, because we forget that we used to have a textile thriving you know, manufacturing industry up north, and it still exists. It's not as big as it used to be because things have transferred to other countries. But in Leicester and Manchester, there is still production. And obviously, um, I don't you know, like to name names, but um, you, you will find it in reports. So it's public knowledge, but you know, Boohoo produce things within space of hours um, relative to trends uh, in their factories in Leicester. So there have been violations around human rights. Um, 
even on our, you know, in the UK. It's a shame because it, so many people contributed to this uh, inquiry. Um, we had, you know, you, it was, the report's huge. You, university professors, your top consultants, you know, um, charities, NGOs. The report, I think, you know, was pretty conclusive as to what actions the government needs to take uh, enshrine many of these, um, you know, laws that will protect the, the planet and people in, you know, the policies. And uh, the government rejected everything. So that inquiry happened in 2018 and then the government reviewed it and rejected um, every element of it in 2019, which I think left people really quite disheartened. And the sad part is actually I think the fashion industry is looking for regulation. So I don't know why they fear it so much implementing something, you know, okay, yes, you might have backlash from some industries and some people, but at the same time, industry in the way is also looking for, uh, you know, guidance as to what they should be doing relative to climate action and, and sustainability. Um, and then I think they wouldn't mind some input from the government about that. Why do you think it was that they rejected all of it? Uh, quite honestly, I think there's a lack of understanding relative to... I mean, the report is very clear, but I, I think uh, there's still this attitude that, you know, um, there are bigger problems and bigger fish to fry uh, in terms of focus of um, politics, um, especially uh, in this period where everything has been focused around um, Brexit. And I think there's a nervousness about, you know, Im implementing anything that's going to touch uh, industry and push, especially in the time of Brexit, push industry out of perhaps the UK by implementing very specific, you know, regulation that might make companies look at doing things, um, you know, elsewhere. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah. Um, there was a poll at the end of last year around the time of the election that revealed that 71% of Britons consider the climate a more pressing issue than Brexit. And Boris has, I think today, appointed a new uh, yes. climate advisor, right? Mark Kearney, yes. Mark Kearney, yes. who has a, has, seems to have a good background in climate yes. issues. Yes. Um, and they are focused on the UK being net zero by 2050. Extinction Rebellion and other activists want that to be changed to 2030. Where do you see uh, politics going at the moment in terms of saving the planet uh, so i was really uh excited about the election um the snap election we had in november i really had hope that there would be the election that was about climate change and uh all the polls suggested it but i didn't really see it reflected necessarily in people's voting so i remember sitting there uh sort of you know 
deciding in the ballot box between two parties at the given point because I was trying to think, do I make a decision relative to London and the UK and our sort of financial future or do I make a decision to vote in a way that's about our planet as a whole and that there was kind of that even tug and pull in in my own conscience Um, and I think many people probably felt that and so I did vote the Green Party in the end even though I've never stood for the Green Party I have stood for a different party in the past but I I didn't see it reflected I guess in in the voting so um, that was a shame because that, that was our big opportunity. But there's a lot of exciting things happening. We're um, hosting COP26 here uh, this year. The thing that people didn't even realize, if we take it beyond the context of just the UK Parliament, this is almost the most important year in human history. So that decade that we have relative to the projections that the United Nations IPCC report states, um, those changes have to happen this year, or at worst case next year, in, in terms of you know building that strategy so yes we have you know perhaps a decade but it has to start in 2020 so this is the most important you know I think conference that will be hosted this year and it's very exciting that Mark Kearney will has been appointed you know the the advisor relative to you know the financial side of it uh, for Boris Johnson because he is actually very pro-reviewing um, uh, climate action within uh, the context of you know the whole world, but specific to the finance world. He's really pushed for it. Now that he's step- stepping down from the Bank of England, he's actually taken up a role in the United Nations tied to sustainability. So I think he's really invested and truly believes in it. And I, it's wonderful that he's going to be part of advising Boris Johnson because I think it's very, many people know that you know some people are skeptical about sort of you know the evidence around um, climate change, and Boris Johnson has been open with that in the past and he has appointed people into his cabinet that are skeptical about climate change so I think it will be a good counterbalance but I, you know, he knows that he has to do something about it still so it's exciting that he's willing despite perhaps his own personal feelings about it to still you know, push for what the population is asking relative to you know, the polls, what they're suggesting um, so definitely more can happen in politics but you know, uh, some things are happening. Having had extensive experience in politics and knowing more about the ins and outs of how you implement a plan and how you make it happen which is something that I if I think about that all I can see is grey I have no idea (laughs) apparently he's coming in in March Mm -hmm. so does that give them enough time to implement a really good plan seems like the financial side of it is going to be the biggest part for the government Mm -hmm. do you think this gives them enough time and do you think are you do you think we should feel optimistic about it I think we should feel optimistic in how many people have moved uh, into our movement and that we're no longer fringe movements so mainstream people in mainstream organisations such as the Bank of England or you know parliament itself or like blackrock recently also a couple of days ago announced um that they're signing up to it's called climate action 100 plus the ca 100 plus and they've been trying to keep you know out of that for quite a while so some of the biggest uh, mainstream institutions are finally on board with this and are no longer in in denial relative to um why um they have to take action i, I mean the reasons for taking action are not just tied to you know a specific conscience that or like an awakening they've had the awakening is actually numbers not necessarily you know um uh, a sense of care which uh, that's a very individual concept i think for institution uh, as a whole institution 
is a little bit clinical. It, it can't care. What it cares about only is really numbers and how it impacts, um, you know, um, the the company. And so the numbers are starting to show for themselves that there's actually uh, a, a risk factor having, um, you know, investment in fossil fuels and relative to the way that the trends are happening in the world and that uh, those people who are not addressing climate action, there's going to be a financial consequence for that relative to, you know, um, the numbers. People are finally on, on board and um, the mainstream institutions are actually doing things about it. Uh, is it happening fast enough? No. And that's why you would, you know, you have David Attenborough, I think he was in the newspaper a couple of days ago, you know, he seems to be amplifying his language, you know, step by step. I think, you know, he's been trying to be moderate for a while, then suddenly his language got a little bit more extreme. And then a couple of days ago, sort of like, this is, you know, we are at the crisis point now and we need to make this decision. This is a life or death decision now. And he has the ability to do that relative to his platform. But the difficult part is when you're sitting, I guess, making these decisions and having this, these discussions in um, institutions. And for instance, I was with the London um, Assembly. Um, who hold the Mayor of London accountable for sort of his work that he's doing relative to London. We're uh, discussing um, extreme weather in the context of London and what the impact is going to be. When you're sitting in a room full of people, I think they don't want to be alarmist relative to sort of, you know, what what... Uh, what needs to be done and how quickly it needs to be done. We're sort of trying to talk through it you know, bit by bit and we'll sort of talk about flooding in this very clinical way of these are the numbers and these are the stats and this is the heat wave stats and what will happen to London. The problem is that um, when you're in meetings like that, everyone's trying to be calm and sort of stay calm and carry on. But then you walk out of that meeting uh, and you just think, oh, oh my God. God, we are in so much trouble if you really digest the information. So it just depends on the, I guess, on the individual person who's dealing with it, how much they are willing to feel. Some people are sort of sleepwalking for it. They know what the information is and they're sort of like, well, we just got to stay calm and we'll sort it out. But I walk out of those meetings feeling, you know, I just, you know, I'm effing and blinding my mind and I'm, I'm panicked. And what I now do on a personal level relative to the work that I started doing is after have really intense meetings like that, which can be, you know, three hours of discussions about climate change and something really extreme of what's coming in the future, I go to an art gallery afterwards to calm myself down because I need that balance in my life as well because when you're dealing with really extreme information, you can start, as you know, many people have started talking about climate change, anxiety, etc. But I'm still always really hopeful. So I'm not panicked, I'm not negative about it. I think we can turn it around. But you do start you know, feeling that kind of... Yeah panicking yourself about it and that really beautifully links actually to something that you said when we were on a panel together we were talking about the you know boycotting fashion and you were talking about how you think you know human instinct is to create and how how creation is so valuable and you you know that's art and that's fashion isn't it Mm -hmm. so where where do you stand on 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 the issue of boycotting fashion do you think that that is beneficial messaging from from extinction rebellion their boycott fashion um the arm of that group what do you what do you think um so i think extinction rebellion are wonderful in the work that they do even if i don't necessarily agree with perhaps everything that they say so they definitely have a place in this movement as a whole be it climate change sustainability environmentalism whatever you want to call it behind the scenes in the government we've been trying to um force policymakers to declare climate emergency for many many years but by speaking so calmly about it we never even achieved that despite our platforms and our influence extinction rebellion came along 
you know, what, what year was it? Is it, in uh, it was only 2018 yeah. that they came about. And then by 2019 of May, the UK government declared a, a climate crisis relative to extinctions, rebellions, actions. I diverge and I agree with them in some ways. We definitely can't purchase our way out of this. <laughs> and we can't buy our way <laughs> out of this, that's for sure. Let's just so, get more stuff. Yeah, let's just get more stuff <laughs> and it's going to solve it. But I, I think what we need to acknowledge is the reality that um, if we are not here to create, then what are we here for? So it's a, it's a really that's a, so it, it becomes a very philosophical question: is that can human beings really exist without creating things that make stuff? So stuff is a kind of a, an awful word in some ways. But generally, what people are attempting to do when they are creating stuff is usually you know they paint and they create like a painting, or they're designers and they create clothes, or someone is an entrepreneur and they're trying to have a business. Ultimately, I don't think the act in what uh, a person is trying to do in industry is is just for the sake of stuff. I don't think that was ever the starting point. But what we're talking about is that that model of us as human beings wanting to create and make things has actually o- over overproduced and especially relative to sort of you know the model of globalization and the model of efficiency and industrialization and how we sort of you know you know, expect companies to have this endless growth that it's kind of got out of hand it's, it's a really hard one to answer yes we need to cap what we make for sure but at the same time i think what we need to do more so is focus on where's the innovation of if we are going to make things it's just to make sure you know that the impact on the you know planet and human beings is minimal and that when you know we discard it um, that it has a you know ability to go back into that sort of circular economy or it's you know biodegradable etc and can disappear really quickly so i think we need to look at answers of if we do continue creating in volumes how can we do that in a way that's really just sustainable instead of non-sustainable because there are answers to that already one solution would be to create policy around mm-hmm. it so let's take a fast fashion brand as an example we could create policy around the amount of product that they were making mm-hmm. and also we could set kind of I guess guidelines and boundaries on the materials that they should be using Mm -hmm. however if we were to do that Mm -hmm. could fast fashion still exist as we know it now uh definitely not so that label cannot continue in terms of um fast fashion because fast fashion is about obviously the volume that they're creating and how fast they're doing it so there has to be an element of slowing down that no one has addressed at all so Zara for instance have uh, announced that they're transferring to um you know, sustainable textiles and to a sustainable model by 2025 um, but there was no language in let's say their announcement around you know the volume so even if they are using sustainable textiles uh, be it I mean their version of sustainable textiles might be let's say a recycled you know polyester or they're going to use organic cotton but if you're still continuing to produce on mass level even if you're using organic cotton, just think how much you know land you need, how much fresh water you need to produce that organic cotton. So there's no even organic cotton is not really that sustainable when you do it on a mass level. And this is the hard part: is that essentially what we're dealing with is uh, overproduction, overconsumption. We're dealing with overpopulation as well, and then our addictions to overproduction and overconsumption relative to a large population. Um, so policy is not enough relative to um, what. Um, needs to be achieved ultimately there has to be a cultural shift over overall I think in societies where we start to reject the amount of things sort of you know pushed on us but where I say we have to work with these sustainability companies uh, sorry with these fast fashion companies before that cultural shift happens where people perhaps reject buying in that way is that um, we can't 
completely separate ourselves and say we will have nothing to do with you let's say as a consumer you can choose not to shop at Zara but as an advocate you don't get a choice to say that you're not going to work with Zara because the, the, the issue is we need money in sustainability and we need money to find the answers and we need the funding to to you know fund the research and development of new textiles because it's not a fashion revolution we need we need actually a textile revolution and that's going to take a ton of money and that money can only come from one place and it is going to come from the fast fashion companies and your luxury companies because they're the companies that are at scale and at large have that money to invest to reform the industry um so it's it's a really hard one because on the personal level how you interact with this brand is up to you and of course you should make choices in the better way on the professional level um unfortunately i don't think we get to bypass these companies because we need you know h&m group zara to invest the money because no one that money can't come from anywhere else the government's not going to give you that money and advocates and in climate change and sustainable fashion or any company don't have that scale um because these companies are dominant um so we really need to be uh we, we need to always pull them up so it's not about compromising relative to our message about the things that they're doing but we also have to be willing to sit at the table with them so i think many people like extension rebellion i think that's my my bugbear with them is that they refuse to sit at the table with these companies to actually have a conversation with them be it the british fashion council or you know your zara itself or you know uh, any of these companies but we have to sit at the, the table with these people to reform them yeah i had a big conversation with my mum about that at the end of last year and i was really struggling i was because i was talking to a big brand and I I didn't know whether I wanted to work with them and I felt like they weren't 100% aligned with what I talk about and my mum was like if you work with them you're in a position to actually make a difference and to actually encourage change if you don't you're not you're not winning anything Mm -hmm. so I think it's so true on a personal level we can choose to boycott fast fashion absolutely we can make that decision with every aspect of our life no matter what it is but if you're listening and you're someone who does work at a fast fashion brand you're in a position to be able to take these issues to the head office or to your manager or to make sure that everyone's kind of aware of what's going on and to actually create change but I'd love to know more about how you personally shop maybe in terms of fashion I would say 50% of my uh, wardrobe is vintage and that began before I even got into sustainability Um, I have always had this kind of fetish for you know these finding treasures um, in in shops and especially really expensive beautiful things that perhaps you would not necessarily be able to afford obviously you get quite a random mix so you do have to supplement that with your your basics that kind of tie your wardrobe together naturally in you know the last you know x amount of years that i've been in sustainability i try and invest in as many key sustainable fashion pieces as uh, as possible um you know and they're you know fantastic brands out there and, and how many brands are out there now is just phenomenal uh in terms of choice and um i my bugbear with that is that uh, the price point is really really expensive for your average person but when i say your average person i also would put into that category even your you know top five percent earner of sort of middle class level because at that point if someone's paying private school fees for you know two kids a mortgage elderly parents etc I, I can promise you you're not going to be shopping at Stella McCartney. Um, so uh, the price point is the difficult part. And that's why I also say we have to reform the fast fashion companies because if people can't afford 
you know, sustainable fashion, then we need to bring sustainability into the companies where people are shopping at because that's their price point. I have my fair share of non-sustainable fashion before I got involved in sustainability. You and me both. Um, and um, I'll be honest with you because people really need to be honest about this. Um, once in a while, I still buy things that are non-sustainable if I really fall in love with it and I and I will walk away like, you know, four or five times and then I'll come back and I, if I still want it. Because the point is, I know that I'm going to wear something for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years if it's of good quality because some things obviously don't last that long. Um, but that also comes from the mentality of, I guess, upbringing and not having as many things. And um, the hard part is you also end up buying things that are sort of semi-sustainable in that you can, let's say, pick up something at Marks and Spencer that will be your responsibly sourced cotton um, and because it's at the price point that you can afford and let's say that's you know, the, the jeans I'm wearing this moment are £25 uh, from Marks and Spencer, respons responsibly sourced cotton but um i know that mark spence was on the um environmental audit committee um you know list of human rights violations so i even though these the cotton was, was responsibly sourced i don't know if this was actually made in a sweatshop but i can't i'm not going to go and spend 300 pound on sustainable jeans but i obviously i'm going to wear these for the next know, i've had these for let's say 10 years now or something it's a really hard one because also working in sustainability you will get pulled up for things like these when you say it or if people find out that you you um um are buying these things but this is the hard part we're not trying to be perfect what we're actually saying is that um, as much as we are able to vote with our credit card and our money, the information and uh, not just the information is, you know, hard to work out because I do know how to work out how to buy the sustainable things. But it's how complex the world is that it would still push you to buy something that might not align with your ethics. There is still this kind of you don't have 100 percent power over your own wardrobe, over your own life, um, essentially, in, in the context of that supply chain and how far it goes. Um, and that's really hard to, you know, I think, um, balance. Yeah, it, yeah, definitely. And I think that's why people feel really fearful when and and kind of at a loss when they see, for example, they see a video that I've made, which is talking about how H&M isn't actually sustainable and it can't be sustainable. And then they're like, but what? They're telling me that they are. And this is, I have access to this. What do I do? Where do you expect me to go? And I think it's really, really hard for consumers. And I'm totally aware of my privilege as someone who doesn't have to shop at H&M and I have time and money. And like, this is part of my job now, which is amazing. But I also really understand the feeling of, so what do I do? Because I've been there and I, and I still go there. I still, I'll come across a sustainable brand and I'll think, be pretty sure that what they're doing is great. But then there's an argument against absolutely everything and no brand is going to be 100% perfect are they it's kind of impossible right unless you're exactly. making your own clothes which would probably mean you're making what one piece a week or something yes, it's exactly. pretty impossible right well here's an example for you so I'm wearing something made by um, I wear a lot of artisan things but when it comes to artisan fashion so even though that's made let's say at grassroots level and um, you know uh, it's not mass produced there's no large volumes but you can't guarantee necessarily what the textile is so I know that this garment that I'm wearing which is you know a beautiful 
beautifully hand embroidered canter piece and it's uh, made in um, in India. Um, I know this is made by women who have been rescued from the slave trade um, and have been given jobs to you know help themselves um, out of you know a difficult situation or well, not just a difficult situation but a very tragic situation in life. But I don't know what this embroidery is on. Is it on you know natural cotton, organic cotton? I, I can't guarantee that. So there are these sort of loopholes to it. And then um, for instance, my scarf that I have with me it's a pashmina, and this is actually a real pashmina. So pe- very few people realise that pashmina only comes from the pashmina goat so anything else is an imitation of that um but many vegans will have uh, an objection to pashmina because it comes from goat even though i can guarantee you that this was made in the most ethical way i know the the they're like shepherds but they look after goats who actually is in charge of this um venture in uh in Kashmir and they've actually had to do conservation work around the pashmina goats to rescue it because due to climate change unusual snowfall they nearly disappeared when i've tried to uh, you know, push this, let's say, project to other people um, who I work with and saying, Bilti advocates that were up in arms that I would be associated with something that was, you know, tied to an animal. So you'll get in trouble with your vegans, etc. So it, it's really hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's concept. really hard. That's one of the things that I um, have come up against a bit just because I still wear old leather and I think, uh, well, I know a lot of vegans don't think I'm in a place to be able to call myself vegan because of that. I probably feel more comfortable when it comes to new clothing to wear sustainably ethically sourced wool than I do you know a jumper that's made out of poly polyester well this is a problem with um even recycled polyester is that you are bringing that back into the cycle again i know obviously that if it's uh, um not a mixed textile you could separate it and use it again time and time again but then you've got to tackle the issue of that microplastic shedding right in your washing machine because people you know obviously focus on the main plastic um but microplastic you know is predominantly from our you know uh, consumer goods be it sort of beauty products or polyester nylon acrylic and all these synthetics so when you're even the recycled version of that, it brings back the same issue time and time again that you're going to get microplastic into the ocean. And now that's coming back at us. And uh, in our, you know, London has the worst microplastic in its rainfall that's happening. It's found in our tap water. It's in our food. So the consequences we don't know yet are what it is um, because it's still in small volumes. But let that volume increase. I can't imagine it, can't, it can be anything, you know. Uh, good about it so uh, yeah it's a, it's a little bit hard and I think also we need um, the mainstream institutions be it sort of the government relative to regulation on all of sustainability or be it sort of institutions like the British Fashion Council relative to fashion big big names to come together and sit down and, and sort of define the categories or things to make things easier and we need to start having categorization relative to clothes that if I walk into a shop I can sort of you know scan through what that textile means for you know our planet and of course companies don't want to do that because it will highlight you know the good and, and bad. What would be your advice to someone this year who really wants to make some changes and you know obviously we've had the election but for people who've, who who want to do something kind of politically what are the best steps that they can take this year to actually make a difference well the biggest step you can take is to actually run for office in some capacity and it's much easier than people realize I mean the the, the journey isn't necessarily easy in terms of being in politics but politics is actually open to everyone I think people always assume that's only a specific type of person and the doors are closed to them and it's it's much easier to get into politics and once you kind of show up to one meeting you'll find yourself you know involved and you'll sort of be promoted very easily and I would love to see more women in politics because I very much so I think this is 
tied to the female agenda that we actually need more women in leadership um, talking about this um, you know, specific subject and this is not obviously not the only subject that a, a female politician w would cover but uh, you can run for local government as a councillor you can run um, obviously at national level there won't be an, an election for you know the next three four years but there is that opportunity to do so um, you know, if you are not interested in running for office, write to your local um, government, write to your local MP about um, your concerns about the environment. And uh, because what people don't realize is that as much as the power sits with <laughs> these big you know, individuals who have these positions, but they are elected by us as, you know, uh, ward members, constituency members, and they are ans answerable to us as well as being answerable to parliament. Um, so when you write to them, they have to write back. And it's not even, you don't even have to be creative because if it, the government isn't doing anything to change anything about the environmental issue, you almost I don't think you owe it to them to even have to write you know, really creative letters. You can send the same letter every six months DMP is just saying, what are you doing about the environment? Kind regards, XXS. Six months later, what are you doing about the environment? Kind regards, XXS. Because they get really nervous when they start getting letters. People sign petitions and things like that. Letters are far more impactful if they come in huge volumes. So if more people wrote to their MPs and flexed their rights as constituency members, I think that would be a great thing. Not everyone's comfortable about attending marches. I'm, I'm always quite careful to say, you know, you have to you know, join our movement and start campaigning with us. People are activists in different formats. Some people are activists via their work, be it sort of, you know, a fashion designer who's putting the ethics into their designs and they might never show up to you know a climate change um march but they're doing it in their work it could be an artist you know you can even be you know a dentist questioning you know what goes into that content of that filling that's my dentist as well okay. i should say okay interesting <laughs> so um you know there's different ways but you know uh it doesn't have to be about walking around with a placard um you know there's different ways to be an activist but it, the, the most important thing i'd say is just don't look away so so many people are just simply they're so uncomfortable and they're frozen into this inaction through fear and they just look away because that's the easiest thing and just get on with my life and you know I'll bury your head in sand. Just don't look away. Be willing to, in 2020, to look at it face on and actually, um, I guess, um, uh, allow that information to sink in and what it means. And then I think you will come to a conclusion what you need to do about it and how you can go about doing something in your life. And then there are the obvious things, you know, try and stay, uh, shop more sustainably by buying sustainable fashion brands, shopping vintage, um, secondhand shops, um, buying less, buying quality. Um, I tried to become more plant-based as well. Um, I still eat fish and meat here and there but not at the volumes that I are used to um and uh I don't drive um I take public transport only I've never driven so um and I don't plan to and I know it's just little changes um and just keep the pressure I guess on by not averting your gaze because if everybody really sort of you know put their gaze on this and said we acknowledge this and we're looking at you and you being, you know, subjective, it's you, Parliament, you, Mr. Boris you know, Johnson, as our Prime Minister, you as institutions, we're, we're watching what you're doing and that you're not doing enough for our environment. And they're going to feel that pressure if eyes are on them. It's, it's when we look away that institutions will get away with not addressing this. And we were looking away for far too long. Thank you. That was brilliant. <laughs> okay, so let's do some final questions okay. to wrap up. What are your three kitchen essentials? These are three ingredients, so foods, that knowing you have them in your kitchen make you feel more relaxed about life. I guess tea, 
would be one chili i just like uh, hot food so i add chili to to everything and chocolate uh, but that's not really an ingredient um it counts okay <laughs> it's easily one of mine how would you feel about doing a quick fire round yes let's do it quick fire with florence breakfast lunch or dinner dinner tea or coffee tea lemons or limes lemons garlic or chili chili walking or running walking yoga or meditation meditation vintage shops or charity shops charity shops sustainable fashion brands or renting our clothes renting our clothes netflix or board games netflix chocolate or nut butter chocolate talking or taste buds talking lovely <laughs> penultimate question what feeds your soul art and culture um without a doubt human beings uh need art and culture to elevate ourselves above that just survival point um art and culture gives us i think hope um it gives us passion and purpose um and i'm not talking about you know art in the context of you know paintings in, in galleries i i mean it in the whole context of really what makes us us as human beings and as creative beings um so as i mentioned earlier um i spend a lot of time um in the art space as well and and uh, without it i just I don't think I'd be able to do any of my my other work. It inspires me. Uh, it re rejuvenates me when I'm exhausted, um, and it creates this you know, deep. I think it's the most beautiful thing that human beings are capable of, and it gives me hope in humanity. Essentially, I love that. And finally, what is your death row dinner starter, main, and dessert? <laughs> well, I don't think it would be a sustainable dinner then. <laughs> <laughs> if it was different um uh, it would be something um maybe that will actually maybe it might be a bit sustainable i think it'll be something that reminds me of my childhood so borscht which is a russian soup with beetroot i know that doesn't sound very exciting but a it's very healthy soup. beetroot soup but sometimes you can put meat into it if you wish um for that sort of meaty stock my main i guess maybe i'll go for something with african food um uh which would be like a fish stew that we have uh that's really delicious um and then for dessert uh god this is like jumping around the world i think i'd probably go for a creme brulee i love it <laughs> great actually creme brulee is quite a popular choice <laughs> yeah. it's a good pudding thank you so much this has been brilliant thank I you really so much for having it. me oh thank you <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the show and thank you to my sponsors at Vivo Life for making it possible. If you enjoyed what you heard, please do share the episode link with your friends on your Instagram stories. You may know that I'm hosting my first ever all-day podcast event on Saturday the 21st of March titled For the Future to shine a light on incredible people doing brilliant work in the climate space. I'm delighted to say that the event sold out in just a few hours, but there is a small chance, and I'm teasing you here, that we're putting out a few more tickets live very soon, so do keep your eyes peeled on my instagram story and as always i will leave a link to my instagram in the show notes and links to my guests too i'll be back with a brand new episode next week in the meantime if you're in the northern part of the hemisphere i hope you're enjoying the longer days and a tiny bit of sunshine and some blossom on the trees that is peeking its head out at the moment it's really making my eyes a little bit more heart-shaped emoji like i'm really appreciating it bring on spring i am not here for the winter anyway i digress have a wonderful day wherever you are and i'm sending you loads of love see you soon bye bye mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.